0: fifth hymnology lesson. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the chance to speak tonight on another wonderful hymn. It was written to glorify you and to edify the saints. I pray, God, that as we look at it, that um, that we'd be encouraged, we'd be directed towards you in our affections, and that as we hear the story of a, um, of a brother in Christ, Lord, that we would Um, just remember that there are people all over the world that you are using to make advancements in your kingdom. Lord, may we be reminded that we are part of that people that you've called us to be on mission and assignment with you, Lord, that we are ambassadors of your truth, and we are called to speak on your behalf. We are called to sing on your behalf, and so I pray, God, that we'd be um, encouraged, and where things uh, need warning in our life, may we receive warning. And may you be glorified in the things that are spoken tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight's hymn is one that uh, has been around for quite a while. It is, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Uh, This is a song that we sing in our service. In fact, all the ones that we are covering in our hymnology class are songs that we sing at our church They aren't the only songs. We've seen quite a few of other songs, contemporary, some older, but this is one of the uh, older songs that we sing. The author of this song is a man named Robert Robinson, and he was born in 1735. His father, Michael, passed away when he was just five years old. Um, His grandfather on his mother's side was a very wealthy man. His name was Robert Wilkin. And Wilkin... She was never happy that her daughter married um, Michael, and uh, she considered her daughter to have married someone of low position in society. And so this grandfather on the mother's side didn't like his son-in-law, and as a result of his displeasure, he made sure that his grandson was disinherited. So you have a grandfather, um, his name again is uh, Robert, and his grandson is Robert as well, but Robert Wilkins disinherited Robert Robinson, the author of our hymn. If you don't know what disinheritance is, it is when you prevent someone from receiving the property that you have or the wealth that you have after your death. And the way that Mr. Wilkins uh, Wilkins disinherited Robinson was this. He decided to leave him just a little bit of money out of his vast wealth. He was given... Uh, Robinson was the author of the hymn. He was given 10 shillings and a sixpence. Now, we don't have shillings here. We don't speak in those kind of terms. And uh, we use pennies and uh, nickels and dimes and quarters and dollar bills and uh, whatever kind of currency you might be using if it's electronic. But um, 12 pennies and a shilling. That was in the... uh, I tried to find out how much money this was worth in the 1700s. The information is hard to come by. It's hard to determine the value something that far ago, long ago. But in the 1900s, all right, uh, this is 125 years ago. Ten shillings was 120 pennies, okay, and a sixpence was six pennies, six pence. So he was disinherited for 126 pennies. Accounting for inflation, at least in the 1900s, this would be just over $6,800 today. And that's based on the 1900s. If you went back another hundred or so years, back to the 1800s, it might be a little more. But by today's standards, it's still not very much money when you consider that a super wealthy man was giving his grandson just a handful of money to say, this is your inheritance, you get nothing else, go away. Okay? So I mention this only to point out that Robinson, the author of our hymn, he wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He started off life in a difficult manner with his father's death and then his grandfather disinheriting him. Nevertheless, in Robinson's family, he had an uncle. He seemed to care about him. And so his uncle paid for him to attend school in Norfolk, England. His mother was raising him, and by all accounts that I could find, she had a difficult time in raising him because he was a bit of a rebel. He wasn't, uh, and that sounds like a lot of teenagers, right? Um, And uh, when he was 14 years old, his mom sent him off to be an apprentice under a hairdresser. Can you imagine (laughs) if you had a teenage boy and he's that bad? And you're like, I'm sending you off to to learn how to cut hair, okay? So on the slide, you're going to see... a picture of something called crutched friars. So he was a hairdresser, uh, uh, an apprentice under a hairdresser who cut hair for friars. I'll explain what all this means. Crutched friars, they're also called crossed friars or crouched friars. A friar is a man who has taken a vow of poverty, and as such, they become part of a brotherhood or an order in the Catholic Church, a group of men. And they didn't walk around with crutches, even though they were called crutched friars. Rather, they walked around with a staff, like a shepherd might. And on top of the staff was a cross that was affixed to it. And so that's why they were called the crutched friars. These friars, again, were an order in England and Ireland, and they date back to the 1100s. So these uh, crutched friars have been around a while. And Robinson. Again, he sat under the apprenticeship, uh, he sat as an apprentice under a man who cut hair for these Catholic friars. Now, if you saw the haircut of uh, Robinson uh, earlier when his picture uh, must not have been a very stylish thing, but nevertheless, That's what he was learning. And his mother had hoped that his apprenticeship under there would help straighten him out and make a man out of him. But it seems that while he was under his apprenticeship, that he met some other rebel rousers, some other no-do-gooders, some other uh, rebellious teenagers during his time away. At the age of 17, he and his friends, they decided to visit a gypsy, a gypsy fortune teller, thinking that it would be a good time to have their future told. That event left Robinson a little bit nervous, a little bit unsettled. Why? Because the fortune teller told him that he would live, that he would live to see his children and grandchildren. Now, he realized that if that were to happen, he'd have to stay alive, which meant he would have to change his ways and stop living such a rebellious and rowdy lifestyle. So he suggested to his friends that they attend the church meeting an evangelistic meeting, an outdoor meeting where someone was preaching. And this guy's name was George Whitfield. George Whitfield is a very famous uh, preacher. He was a Calvinist, he was also a Methodist. And he was famous for being an outdoor preacher who preached in open fields and parks where large crowds would gather to hear him. And um, I've even read accounts where Benjamin Franklin even heard uh, George Whitfield's preaching. This was in 1752. Robert Robinson is just 17. That night, Whitfield was preaching from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. And that scripture says, But when he saw, referring to Jesus, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Jesus speaking says to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So that's what Robinson hears after being scared by this gypsy fortune teller and her future telling, supposedly. Um, and in 1755, or, uh, uh, but he didn't get converted that night, but he was bothered by that sermon for the next several years. Okay? And in 1755, Robinson finally came to know Christ from that sermon so long ago. It just kept haunting him, and it, kept, it was like a rock in his shoe that would, wouldn't quit bothering him. Now, church, I want that story in history to just be a reminder to you. Let it be an encouraging reminder that a conversion, that you, I'm sorry, that a conversation or a gospel opportunity that you have with a relative or a friend or a family or a sermon they hear that when you bring them to church, it could take several years for that seed to grow after it's been planted and watered. So, I want you to be encouraged by that. The song we sing tonight was written by a guy. Who heard a sermon, and some three years later, that sermon came to finally bear fruit. Your labor is not in vain when it comes to gospel conversations and evangelistic work. Several times, I've told the story of a gospel conversation that I had with a man in Missouri who was stoned out of his gourd. I don't know if you ever tried to talk to somebody who was high. And uh, they're just all over the place, okay? I was certain, 100% certain, that he didn't understand a word I said. Every time I tried to share scripture with him, every time I tried to explain the gospel, he would say this. He would say, in his surfer stoned voice, that's not it, man. And I'm like, he, he would say, your it is not it. My it is it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He just stoned I'd ask him, "What is your it? What is it that you 're talking about?" and he 'd reply, "It, man, it is it. my it is it your it is not it and, uh, and I said, man, wh- uh, what if what if Jesus is it and your it is not it And I had no idea what his it was he 's just like, it and i don 't know if he was looking at the sky. I had no idea what he's referring to. And I just kept thinking, this guy is higher than a guy. There's, why am I even bothering talking to him? Well, 10 years later, I'm talking to another friend of mine. He lives in Missouri, and, or he did at that time. And he told me that he was meeting up with a friend. And he mentioned the friend's name, that he was meeting up for him for discipleship. They were accountability partners. He mentioned his name, and I asked, the guy you're meeting with, is he related to a guy named Nick? And my friend said, yeah, how'd you know that? Turn, And so I told him this story. Turns out that the stoned man I shared the gospel with, some 10 years later, was my friend's discipleship partner. And I told my friend, that's crazy. I shared the gospel with him while he was high as a kite. And I told him, my friend about this conversation that he was like, your it is not it, dude. Like, my it is it. And I'm like, what if Jesus... Is, is it, and your it is not it. I told him that conversation. My friend flipped out on the phone. He told me that this former stoner, his accountability partner, when he began, uh, when he came to Christ, it was because he began to question whether his it was it, okay? And he began to seek after Christ. Who knew that that conversation way back in the 4th of July in 1995 would be used to stir the stole? of a sinner, soul of a stoner, and cause him to seek out Christ. I'm sure other people watered that. I'm sure other people came along and shared the gospel again. But that conversation caused a guy to question his way of living and his reason for living. God used it to plant seeds, at least. And uh, likely someone else watered. God gave the increase. So never doubt what we learn in Robinson's story, that a sermon someone hears or the gospel conversation that you hear, uh, never doubt what God can do with that. And it might take years for that to come to play, uh, play out where they're saved, it may not. And so Robinson gets saved many years after hearing a sermon by George Whitfield. His heart is changed. He began to study the scriptures, he loved them, and he began to read Christian theology books by other authors. And in his studies, he was eventually convinced that Catholic infant baptism was ineffective because Catholics believe in baptismal regeneration, that that's what saves your soul, that you are born again when you're baptized as a baby. He was convinced that it was ineffective. It didn't save anyone, of course. And um, anytime you have a major th- a shift in theology, it can stir up some conflict in your friends and in your family if they are religious and uh, hold to a particular set of doctrine. So imagine the difficulty that Robinson faces as a young man as he no longer believes that infant baptism is necessary for salvation, and he comes from a family where there are 12 un- uh, unbaptized children. right? The, the, he's going against the grain uh, in, in pushing for Christian theology. Well, eventually, Robinson, he enters ministry, and he's serving at a church in Norfolk, England. Um, it was there that he wrote in 1958, he wrote this song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. He was just 23 years old, just 23 years old, just a little bit older than Aaron and am I Am I close to that? All right, right around there, okay? So their young age over there, he's writing this amazing hymn that would have an effect for coming up on 300 years, 275 years. And he wrote it for a sermon that he was gonna be preaching on Pentecost Sunday that year, all right? And I find it interesting that a lot of critics of modern day Christian music, they act, there are a lot of people that frown upon churches writing their own music for their own people. Which, if done poorly, then that shouldn't be encouraged. You don't want to write bad music with bad theology for churches. So some of that criticism is warranted. But from what I've seen already on several occasions that we've talked about some hymns, from what I've already seen, that there are hymn writers that write songs based on what they are going to be preaching on so that the word is being preached and then the word is being sung. And I find that to be particularly effective and very helpful in discipling people. And so they found occasions, they found times in their church life where there was no sermon, or there was no song to fit the sermon, and so they began to write songs that would fit the sermons, okay? Something was missing in their hymnody and uh, in their musical uh, uh, collection of songs. And so they had to write new stuff to assist the church with doctrine and their affections to God. So these great songs that we now sing, they weren't given to humanity by God at the beginning of creation. Instead, they came about in actual human history. And many of them, many songs are actually still recent. Um, Even this song, not not even 300 years old. In regards to the long length of church history, several thousand years, they're still relatively new songs. And when they came out, they were brand new. So can you imagine... If we were critical back then, 275 years dude, what are you writing a song for the church? You know we can't do that. We can only sing old and time-tested songs. Put Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, put that away. But that's what people do now with, with modern-day songs, all right? As if this, this was, uh, as if these, uh, that we can't write new songs, and that's just not true. There are still a lot of songs that need to be written to help the church at large. There still is. It's wrong to say that, again, you should only sing time-tested songs written so long ago. It's just, it's illogical because not every song can be time-tested. It has to be new at some point. All hymns were new. And so it's wrong to say that churches shouldn't write their own music and that we should only sing well-known hymns that everyone is familiar with. There was a time, again, when these songs weren't well-known and people were not familiar with them. If someone in the church has musical this is so important to grasp a bigger picture of the scripture. But if someone in the church has musical ability and they have solid knowledge of scripture, even some scriptures, solid enough to write a good song with sound truth, then it would be selfish to keep it locked away and not bless God and others with it, okay? I don't know if you realize this, but part of the creation mandate, do you remember when God said, have dominion over the world? It it wasn't just, trees and animals that we were to have dominion over. Do you realize that when you when you look at the world you see evidence of people having dominion over the world. Aren't you glad that we don't live in mud huts anymore or or houses just made of straw? Aren't you glad that Mankind got smarter and developed and mined and took all everything that we see in this world as a result of mining things out of the, out of the ground or using vegetation in some sort like trees to make lumber and things like that. That is what it means to have dominion over the world. You are dominating and mastering everything and understanding God's creation for his glory and so that hum, humanity can benefit from it. And one of the ways that we have dominion over the world is mastering music. Can you imagine if there was only like five musical notes to sing and one tune to sing all songs for all of human history? How boring would that be? How counter, uh, to, the, uh, how counter to the creation mandate would that be? Are, are you, does that make sense? We are to master music. And that means we have to improve and do things differently than they were done before. It doesn't mean those old styles can't be used, but we're to grow in our understanding of music and use it for God's glory. Those that want to sing only old songs and frown upon new songs as if the golden age was there and that's all we can do um, are failing to see that people need to develop skills and grow in them for the glory of God. And that pleases God because it's what he's instructed us to do. Okay? And so... um, And again, I'm glad construction workers build. I'm glad I don't have to ride around in a horse and buggy. Can you imagine if you had to go to work down the hill in a horse and buggy? How early would you have to leave? And how cold would you be in the winter? How hot would you be in the summer? Aren't you glad that some of us have heated seats and heated steering wheels? You're like, whoa, that's technology. We got all the things that are made from the ground to do this kind of stuff whether it's wiring or materials or whatever. That's what the creation mandate is all about. And we have to relate that to music as well, okay? Um, It just shows how marvelous God is and how he's made us because we are made in his image. The creation mandate. Keep that in mind when we're learning new songs. Someone is growing and learning and doing what God has called them to do. Artistic talent should flow amongst God's people. Okay, enough about that. In 1759, Robinson moved to Cambridge, England. He settled into Stoneyard Baptist Chapel, all right, which is now called St. Saint Andrew's, Saint Bapt, uh, Andrew's Baptist Church. Eventually, in 1762, Robinson became the pastor of that church. He uh, was there, and the congregation grew to over 1,000 people, and they took care of this man of God, this preacher man who, if you remember at the beginning of our account... His father died and his grandfather disinherited him. So he didn't grow up rich. But here this church is taking care of this man. He was able to purchase, with their caring for him over time, he was able to purchase 80 acres of farm land. And then he began to raise livestock and he grew wheat and barley. Now, there are some people who report that Robinson was a Unitarian. And I'll explain what that means based on a letter that he had written and based on the fact that he had friends that were Unitarian pastors A Unitarian, think of unity, one, okay? A Unitarian denies the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? Um, We are Trinitarians here at Sovereign Wake Christian Church. We are not Unitarians. We believe that God is three persons, all right? That three in person, not three persons. He is three in person and one in nature. There's the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but they all have the same essence, so that they are fully God. They are not parts of God. They—it's uh, not like they're Voltron, or does anybody even know Voltron, where the five separate units come together to make one big giant robot? Okay, they are not that. Okay, they are not one person wearing three different masks, like a husband who is a father and a son, and uh, you know, a brother or something like that. Nevertheless, the father is God. Scripture says. The Son is God, the, son is, uh, the Spirit is God, and the Father is not the Son, and the Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son. But there are three persons who are God and one in essence. And there's no contradiction in stating that, because you're not stating that there are three in person, but one in person. You're not stating that there are many essences, but one in essence. There's two different categories in which you say there is three and that they are one. They're one in substance. They're all all-knowing. They're all all-powerful. They're all righteous. They're all full of wrath and uh, its perfections. And so they have all the essence of God completely, but there are three persons. And they uh, fellowship and they associate with each other and they communicate with each other and they love each other. Unitarians believe that God is just one person and that's it, okay? They deny the deity of Jesus Christ, and they say that Jesus is just God. Uh, He's not God. He is just a man. And uh, to them, he's a great moral teacher, and uh, he taught us to follow God, but he was not God. And so even though Robinson was accused of being a Unitarianist, his sermons show that he was Trinitarian, okay? Even after this false accusation, he quoted this at the end of his life, Christ in himself is a person infinitely lovely as both God and man. And Unitarians don't talk like that. That is how Trinitarians talk. Okay? Robinson died in 1790 at the young age of 54. That's very young. Now, when we look at the song, that's a brief sketch of his life. Not a ton of stuff written about him, but we have enough to kind of get an idea of what his life was about. Theologically, let's look at the lyrics, okay? The first verse of this song says, Come thou fount of every blessing. And uh, Christian has a handout. If you didn't get that, um, just make sure you grab one. It has the lyrics on it so you can follow along. If not, hopefully they're on the screen. It says, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. That's the first half of verse 1. And so Robinson, when you look at the lyrics, like, let's analyze them. Because he starts off with a plea to God to come and tune his heart so that he would sing God's grace. Okay, He's pleading for God to come and tune his heart. And he refers to the Lord as the fount or the source of of every blessing, of all blessing. James 1.17, a very familiar verse to us, it says only some good gifts and only some perfect gifts are from above, right? That's not what it says. It says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from Santa Claus, right? Nope, it doesn't say that either. Coming down from the Father of lights. Everything good that we have. And so when he says, come thou, come you, Fount, source of every blessing. That's what he's saying, all right? Every blessing we have is from God. And Robinson recognizes that there is a human tendency to not praise God for his good gifts. And so he asks God to tune his heart. Very creative language. He views his own simple heart as an instrument that needs to be tuned up. It needs to be brought into correct pitch, to sound right. I don't know if you've ever, I know some of us in here have, if you've ever heard, I don't know if you've ever heard a guitar or a piano that's out of tune. It's, it sounds bad, right? When your kids are first learning instruments at home or you have, it's like, that thing doesn't sound right. Sometimes it's because it's not tuned right. But when you hear it tuned properly and it's played right, it, it sounds great. It doesn't sound as awful, I should say, as far as musical instruments. Um, and that's how our hearts sound to God when they are not praising God for his gifts they, they sound ugly and I'm guilty of this I'm guilty of having days where I don't praise God because I'll, I'm just grumpy or mad or miserable about my life situation and I don't there are times when I don't like where God has me I don't know if you've ever felt like that God you didn't have to put me in the situation you're all powerful and you're all wise surely you know there where's your better plan for me we can feel like that at times And that means my heart is out of tune with the sovereignty of God. It is out of tune with the love of God. It is out of tune with the knowledge of God. It is out of tune with the power of God. And my heart is twisted, and it's like a horrible-sounding instrument to God. Okay? Sounds awful. And we need God to help tune us up so that we will sing his grace. So he's relying on God. God, help me. I need your help to praise you. And Robinson says in that same verse, he says that the only proper response to God, to his never-ending stream of mercy, is that of songs of loudest praise. That is the only proper response. Streams of mercy that never cease, that calls for songs of loudest praise. Not louder, but loudest praise. You can see Psalm 47.1, it says that we're to sing loud songs of joy to God. And it's perfectly godly. It's perfectly righteous for us to shout to God with loud praise. Please hear that. That isn't to say that every moment of our corporate worship ought to be loud and shouting. But there are times that that calls, that worship calls for that. Okay? Loud shouts. I mean, do you know what a shout is? It's a, Yeah! There's a gentleman in our church. I'm sure there are sometimes he bothers people because he's like, whoo! Right? That's a loud shout. God is not bothered by loud shouts of joy for him. And if we come from a frozen, chosen, Baptist, non emotional kind of worship because we think emotions are bad in worship, then we will not shout for joy. We will relegate to that something like, hey, you're out of line. Step back in line and. That's not the way it's supposed to be. God is worthy of it. And so often those who believe in the doctrine of election, we have a horrible nickname. Those who believe in the Calvinistic doctrine, we're called the frozen chosen because we are so sometimes, we are so stiff, so lifeless, and non-boisterous in our worship. God's never-ending mercies deserve songs of loudest praise. We can shout for joy for a variety of reasons, We shout for joy when our favorite team scores a touchdown. There will be a lot of shouting for joy come Super Bowl Sunday when your favorite player runs into the end zone. Yeah! That is a shout for joy. Nary can I count the times on one hand when people do that for God. That that, that should serve as a rebuke. This song, when we sing it, and if we're just whispering it, it should serve as a rebuke. My God is worthy. Scripture says praise befits the upright, loud praise. Look at Scripture and what it says, all right? We get a raise at work, we're happy. We've been to a concert, we're happy and we shout. We shout on roller coasters, at least I do. I do so my stomach won't tickle so bad, right? It helps relieve some of that. But it's fun to be on a roller coaster. But when's the last time you, ask yourself that question, when's the last time you shouted for joy, for God's mercy? When's the last time you praise God in church and went to work hoarse the next day because you are hooting and hollering for God. Do you feel that God is worthy of that? Do you feel, do we feel that God is worthy of that? Is grace, and, is grace and mercy that awesome to you? Those of you watching online, is grace and mercy that awesome to you that you want to shout for joy? That's what Robinson thought, that he is worthy of that. The next part of verse one says, teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. Robinson's desire is to learn the songs of heaven based on what we're learning here in reading. He wants to be taught the melodious sonnets, the poems with music that are sung by flaming tongues above. Now, there's, I couldn't find any scripture that referenced flaming tongues above, but if you recall in the book of Acts, when the tongues of fire rested upon the believers on the day of Pentecost and they spoke in other languages or what people call tongues, other languages, all right, um, you remember that. And it's a clever image, uh, use of imagery in what Robinson is saying. Just as the Spirit enabled people to speak other languages, he's saying, Lord, teach me to sing heavenly praise. He's he's connecting the two because there isn't, I couldn't find any scripture and if, uh, if it's in there, you can show it to me later, but I couldn't find anything that said that there were tongues of fire and beings in heaven and they were praising God. But he's He's, he's using the language of Acts and the flaming tongues to say, just as God taught, taught them to speak and enabled them, enable me, God, to sing uh, songs of heavenly praise, okay? So teach me, some, uh, teach me to sing that way. And it, it almost carries the hint of how Jesus taught us to pray. How did Jesus teach us to pray? May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we sing songs on earth as beings are singing in heaven. And we do have record of that in Revelation. Then Robinson goes on to declare in, uh, that God's love, it is God's love that redeems us and it is like a mountain that he is fixated upon. And truly, that is where our heart and affections should be on, on, on a daily basis. It should be centered there. We are called, scripture says, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3, 18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so when you look at that scripture, you see the scripture calls us to do two things. We are to grow in the grace of our Savior and we are to grow in the knowledge of our Savior. It's not telling us to grow in the knowledge of grace, although we can do that. It's calling us to grow in grace, which is a little different. Okay? We are to bask in, in grace, and this will help us to grow. We are to consider grace, okay? We need to constantly reflect, and we need to be fixated on the grace that God shows to us. Of course, this does require learning. Nobody doubts that, but the point is not just to know stuff, but to relish in it, according to Scripture, to be captured by it, to be enthralled by it, to be covered by it, to bathe in grace. And you will grow in grace as you grow in the knowledge of our Savior. Second verse of the song has some weird phrases. He says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by thy great help I've come. Some translations will say hither. He says, I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. So now we look at verse 2. Now, Ebenezer is not a mean man with the last name Scrooge. That's what many of us are familiar with, okay? And Ebenezer, again, you know what's funny is we sing these songs, and some of the words, like, it's so beautiful. Sometimes we don't even know what we're singing because the words are a little bit archaic, okay? But here I raise my Ebenezer. And Ebenezer is a stone of help, and it's taken from Scripture. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, the Israelites were engaged in battle with the Philistines. Israel was victorious, And they actually took back from the Philistines several cities that that the Philistines had formerly taken away from them. And to celebrate this victory, this victorious incident, the prophet Samuel takes a stone and he sets it up to commemorate God's help. And he called the stone Ebenezer. Okay, and you can read that account. And it means, till now the Lord has helped us. Right? Till now the Lord has helped us. And so Robinson is raising a figurative figurative Ebenezer. The Lord has helped me. The Lord, in other words, has saved me. He's speaking in, uh, in past time. He says, here I raise my Ebenezer. Here, by thy great help, I've come. I have come. It's something that has taken place in the past. I have come to the place that I am because of the help of God. And so I raise an Ebenezer in my heart to commemorate God's salvation, it's a a stone of help to say, God, you have saved me. You have rescued me. And I I don't want to forget it. It's like sometimes, uh, you know, you may have a loved one that passed away. And so you plant a tree or something like that in their memory. And every time you see the tree, you remember them. It commemorates uh, their great life and their influence on you. But here, Ebenezer signifies a way to commemorate God's salvation, his help. And so Robinson's prayer is that God will finalize that salvation so that he'll arrive at home. He's not talking about his physical home. He's talking about the permanency that he he will have with God in the new creation. And so Robinson is speaking of past salvation, you've saved me, and then he's praying, God, just get me all the way to the end. May I endure until Christ comes again and makes all things new. And he hopes that that it is God's good pleasure to bring him home. And certainly, God is pleased with bringing his children to final salvation. And that should be our prayer too. God, keep me saved. Help me to endure in the faith. I want to make it home with you. The second part of the second verse says this. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Luke 18.10 says this. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. And we learn from Scripture that no one seeks God, But instead, it is God who seeks us. John 16, 10 says this. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And the imagery that Jesus is using here um, is that he came to get his wandering sheep and to bring them into one fold under one shepherd. There are people, he's saying, that aren't saved right? But that Christ has purpose to save them, and so he calls them lost sheep. They are his sheep. They are not currently in the fold. They are out there living in an unsaved manner, and nevertheless, they're his sheep, and uh, he is going to rescue them, okay? That is to say, they aren't his sheep the moment they get saved, they are his sheep now, but they are wandering away in an unsaved, unsafe and unsaved condition, and he will bring his sheep home. His sheep are the lost, right? Not all lost, but particular ones, and they need rescuing. As Robinson put it, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. And to k- keep him from harm, he says, he to rescue me from danger It says, he did something for me. He interposed his precious blood. That's not a word that we often use, interposed. I don't know. I don't think I've ever used it outside of this song, all right? His blood. That's what he used to interpose in my life. And the result is, that's how he kept me from danger. His blood interposes for me, okay? That's his death. That's what, when we say the word interpose it means to stand between something, two things to prevent danger from happening to another, okay? So interpose means to come between or to interfere. In order to keep death and danger or judgment from hurting us, he interferes by means of his lifeblood, by his death and resurrection. In other words, the death we deserve that was coming to us, he took for us. That is what Jesus does for his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He lays out his life for them. We were bound for hell to suffer the wrath of God. And Jesus stepped between us and the wrath of God and he took the hit, okay? Now, let me just say something about old hymns before we move on to the third verse. Again, they often use old words like Ebenezer and interposed, and we don't use those words. Am I right? I haven't really ever used these words outside of this song. I'm just telling you. I just want to say that complex words that you don't understand, that is not what makes a song rich in truth. Okay, It's not fancy words, but truth that's understandable. One of the reasons I wanted to have this class is every week we mention something of some myth that we try to bust up worship myths. Okay, Some people think that the fancier the language the richer the truth that's being sung, okay? Some people really take that mentality, and that's not true. If you say Jesus died in my place, that is not more godly than saying Jesus interposed his precious blood. Are you tracking me? Jesus interposed his precious blood is not more godly or more truthful than Jesus died in my place. Are, they are both saying the same thing, Correct? And sometimes people will be critical of a worship song because archaic language is not used, and they will look at this and say, oh, this contains this wonderful truth. Uh, We don't find that in any current songs, and that's just not true, okay? We don't want to erect false senses of superiority and false righteousness when it comes to things like this. Big fancy words don't make songs rich in truth. In fact, sometimes they can obscure truth if we don't know the words and we're not familiar with them. They, They can obscure a song when we don't talk like this anymore. And that's why I had to explain what an Ebenezer was and interpose. Are you with me? Imagine if we, in... Every once in a while we'll explain in a song on a Sunday morning what these words mean, but sometimes we don't always have time to. And here we are singing these songs, and we think, I'm being godly because I'm singing things I don't know. And it sounds really rich in theology, uh, but what's an Ebenezer? Uh, I I saw Scrooge once, and uh, that's all we know about Ebenezer. Okay, And I know Ducktails, and I think their uncle was named the same thing. I I don't remember. Um, But... We all needed to have some things explained. It doesn't make it godly because it's complicated or unknown. And uh, we can sometimes sing old songs and we can be less spiritually enriched because we aren't human thesauruses. Sometimes we sing old songs and don't even know what we're singing. And then we forget to look up the words when we go home. And so it's no different than singing a foreign language that we're unfamiliar with. That's not helpful for anyone. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 19, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He's referring to an an unknown tongue, okay? I I would rather sing five intelligible words with my voice, if I were to put it in my words, I would rather sing five understandable words with my voice in order to instruct others than 10,000 hymns that are 200 years old with archaic words that no one understands, but they sound fancy. The truth is what matters. And so we can sing old songs, we just want to understand them, okay? Nevertheless, uh, we want to encourage you and your faith in Christ by explaining just a few words here that they can help, uh, so that we can help this older song go a long way, all right? He says in verse 3, O to grace, how great a debtor! Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee, All right? Daily I'm constrained to be. Robinson is really cl- lyrically clever here. The first two lines express the fact that God's grace makes him daily constrained or daily indebted to God. In Christ's goodness, he paid our debt so that we would not go to hell under the wrath of God. But in Christ paying our debt, we, like Robinson, become indebted to Christ. Right? When someone does something wonderfully to you when you're in a horrible situation and you need help out of that situation and they help you, like, I'm indebted to you. They, they paid the price for your awful situation and now you feel a sense of in, in, indebtedness, like, like you owe them something, okay? We owe Jesus, but we can never repay him. We can't. We are to be daily controlled or constrained. That's what that word constrained means. Daily controlled by this truth. Let, oh to grace, how great a debtor. God's grace has made me forever indebted to God. Daily, therefore, I am controlled by that knowledge. I'm constrained to be, okay? I, I am forced to be a debtor by the grace of God to him. And so Robinson built on this imagery of being in debt to Christ and he says it's a good thing. Because normally when we think of debt, we think of a bad thing, right? He says this is a good thing. He wants the goodness of God to be like a chain. Now, if, if, there's that negative phrase that some people use of their spouses, the old ball and chain. They feel like they're just tied to something and it's not pleasant. That's a horrible way to look at your spouse. But if you're in prison and you're tied up, that's not a fun place to be because you did something awful in society. But he says, God, I want your goodness to be like a fetter or or like a chain. I want it to control me. I want it to constrain me. I want that chain to control me in such a way that it keeps me from wandering away from you. Your goodness is a chain. Chain me and don't let me go away. Continue to bless me with goodness and that goodness is is, uh, fully shown to us in Christ. The chain is not something normally we consider good. It, again, it reminds us of prison. You are constrained and you can't go anywhere. But that's exactly what Robinson longs for. Lord, let your goodness chain me so I will never wander away. And this lyric reminds me of the song that we sing, How He Loves. Oh, how he loves us, right? And there's a phrase in there that says, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. Do we normally want to sink in an ocean? No. But he says, if grace is an ocean, we are all sinking. Sinking an ocean is bad, but not if the ocean is God's love. Being chained up is bad, but not if it's chained to God's goodness. And so that's how he is using these words. It's, it's, um, it's almost like paradoxical when you put them together. You're like, he wants to be chained to God's goodness, but he's being clever again with the use of poetry and lyrics. Why does he want to be chained to God with his goodness? Why does he want his wandering heart, all right, to be bound to God? Because the last part of verse 3 says, he's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Robinson knew that his heart so often wanted to leave God. The one he loves is the one he so often leaves. He then offers his heart to God. Here's my heart. Seal it. Fasten it tightly to you, God. When you seal an envelope, you lick that nasty tasting glue and you seal it, it it is stuck together, okay? Fasten me tightly to you, God. Why? Because I'm prone to separate from you, God. I want to be sealed, right, for your courts above it's an amazing song. There's biblical truth mixed in there with personal reflection, personal prayers of desperation. God, please don't let me wander away from you. We should desperately pray that. We have no idea what will come into our life this week that will tempt us to walk away from God. We are prone to do that. May God's goodness, like a chain, bind our wandering hearts to Him. I don't know about you, but I've been singing this song for 44 years. It'll be in my worship mix on whatever platform I used to listen to music. It'll be on there till the day I die. It's a great hymn. I know many of you have been blessed by it. I can hear the gospel in it. I can sense the delight in God for his great mercy and salvation. And you can relate to the prayers and I can relate to the prayers that we need to be chained to God because we are prone to stray. Robinson expresses some massive reflection and affections to God in this hymn. But I can tell you that Robinson Robinson did not always feel this way towards God, even as a pastor. Like us, he had struggles, and the song expresses that reality. Let me tell you this final story, and then we will listen to a couple versions of the song. There's a story that took place many years later after he wrote this hymn. He was much older than when he had written it at the age of 23. He's in his early 50s at this point, a few years before he died, he was about to get into a stagecoach one day and he, took a, he was going to take a ride to church and he saw a lady inside and he thought, you know to himself, I'll just catch another ride. But the lady said she was going to church and he said he was too and so he decided to ride along with her. She had a hymn book in her hands and she's humming a tune and singing some words to a song and she asked him if he ever heard this song he said, as he's crying, Madame, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago. I would give a thousand worlds, if I had them, to enjoy the feelings that I had then. 30 years after he wrote this hymn, she's singing it, and, he, and he's thinking, I'm nowhere where I was back, back then. Prone to wander." Lord, I feel it. Church, I'm so glad God gave us music. Good music stays with us. It helps us to lodge truth deep in our hearts and our souls. It helps us to express delight in God and sorrow when we sin against him. It allows us to use poetic language to say things we can't just say with ordinary language and prose. We need good, godly old songs and godly new songs as well. Our kids need them. Our church needs them. The Lord delights in our praises and our prayers. And I pray that this song ministers to the word of God to you as it helps you to pray to our Lord. And this song was used at the end of his life to break him before God, reminding him that he was prone to wander. Imagine someone using your own words one day to flip it back on you, not knowing that you said that, and God using your own words to rebuke you or to encourage you or to bring you back to God when you've been wandering from him. And that's what happened in this account. This is a beautiful hymn. It's been recorded by many artists, like Jars of Clay, David Crowder, Phil Wickham, Lee Nash, Sixpence None the Richer, Mercy Me, King's Kaleidoscope, and Chris Tomlin, Jimmy Needham, and Fernando Ortega, a lot of people. It's been played live at concerts by Mumford & Sons. um, The version that we sing in church is by King's Kaleidoscope. They're an indie band out of Seattle, Washington. It's my favorite version of the song, and they use an organ in the song or um, some sort of organ with an effect, a tremolo effect, which makes it sound a little bit uh, like it's, uh, uh, what's the word I'm using? Uh, Wobbly, all right? That's what tremolo does. It's quivering and it's shaking, and it gives it a really nice effect, but we'll listen to that in a minute. But first, I want you to listen to a version of the song that has a little bit of a big band uh, a jazzy type feel, okay? This is by Jimmy Needham. I love his hymns album. It's uh, it, it's one of a kind. I don't know many others like it, but a lot of the songs are in the fashion that you're about to hear, in the style that you're about to hear. So Christian, just queued up for a couple minutes. This is Jimmy Needham singing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing.
1: Oh, come thou fount of Every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Oh, teach me some mail, yard of it Sung my flaming tongues abode Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of demon love Here we go! Here I raise my Ebenezer Hither by thy help I come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home. Oh, Jesus stop me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. Oh, you to rescue me from danger and oppose his press button.
0: That's Jimmy Needham. If you like that kind of music. Um, I, I do. My daughter plays jazz and sings big band stuff, um, but I've always had a liking for that kind of stuff, and every once in a while, I'll be taking a long drive, and I'll just pop that uh, particular album on my playlist, and uh enjoy um, quite a few of those songs on that that album, but that is a hymns album by Jim and Edom. Now, the next uh, version that you hear is by King's Kaleidoscope. They um, are out of Seattle, And they are an indie band. And so their sound is sometimes uh, all over the place. But uh, nevertheless, this is the version that we sing. This song, um, we don't have an organ with a tremolo effect. But if you'll notice, when we play this song on Sunday, we use a harmonium, harmonium, which is an Indian instrument. It plays like a keyboard, but it uses air forced into it to create like a little organ sound. Sometimes Macy will play it. Sometimes Ellie will play it. But uh, you'll hear that in the song. Uh, Brother Christian, if you'll cue that up and we'll listen to a couple minutes. And after this, uh, we'll pray and we'll sing our song uh, together tonight.
2: Saw at me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. All
0: right, so that is another version. There are dozens out there all right so uh, find one that you enjoy singing to god this is one that's the version that we sing on sunday and we're actually going to be singing it this sunday Uh, for every hymnology class that we do that coming sunday we'll be singing that particular hymn and uh, as you sing it now you understand the meaning of it Uh, you understand the story behind it the one who wrote it and you've heard a couple versions but let us close out our time together in prayer and then we will sing this song Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the source of every blessing. As we get ready to sing, may you tune our hearts to sing about your grace, your never-ending mercy. You are worthy of loudest praise. And I know there are times we can be embarrassed of, embarrassed of how we sing, or we may not be familiar with the song, but you are worthy of loud shouts of praise. So teach us to sing. As those in heaven are praising you, may be done here on earth. May we never forget that you are our help. And that we are saved by by your goodness. And we know that you'll bring us home. And you'll complete our salvation. May we never wander. May we never stray from you. May your goodness bind us to you. May you be blessed and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.